You're listening to Dedication Point, an oral history of the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. I'm your host for today's episode, Matt Podolsky. This oral history project was produced by the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership, working in close collaboration with the Bureau of Land Management, the Wildlands Collective, and the Peregrine Fund's Archives of Falconry. The series will feature 20 interviews conducted with key figures in the history of the Snake River Canyon region. This is the sixth interview that we've released as a part of this series. Karen Steenhoff has been working in the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey NCA for over 40 years as a wildlife and research biologist. The research that she conducted in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s played a key role in the establishment of protection for the area. She has become one of the leading advocates for research-based management of the NCA, advocating for continued raptor monitoring in the Snake River Canyon and playing an important advocacy role in the controversial decision to route a new power line through the canyon. It was an honor to speak with Karen about her involvement in the history of the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey NCA, and we thank her for sharing her story with us. My name is Karen Steenhoff. I have uh, been a raptor research biologist for a long time, but I retired from the federal government in 2008. Um, I worked uh, for BLM and USGS as a raptor research biologist. I first came to the Birds of Prey, what's now the Birds of Prey National Conservation Area, in 1977. I was a new PhD graduate student at Utah State at the time, and my advisor was Mike Wolf, who already was one of the contractors working on the integrated research project. And he was mainly looking at um, mammals other than ground squirrels, um, rodent populations, and I think maybe songbird populations too. But someone decided there was a need to look at the vulnerability of ground squirrels to raptor predation, principally prairie falcon predation. And so that was to have been my Ph.D. project. So I came out as a graduate student in um, spring of 1977. It turned out that um, the winter of 1976-77 was the most severe drought winter ever, and ground squirrels didn't reproduce. So I had no study after going out there and trying to see prairie falcons capture ground squirrels and try and relate it to certain habitats and things. I had nothing. (laughs) So um, I decided that rather, now, was that because of drought or was it just an impossible task? Well, in the 40 years... 41 years since then, no one has answered that question. So it was probably a good thing that I decided to bail out of that PhD project. And so I was pretty much done with my field work in May or June, and I just started hanging out and helping out with the other field work that was going on. And I also started helping out in the office, which is where they really needed me. Because I was fresh out of grad school, right, and I had been, I knew how to write some 
Fortran programs. I knew how to run SAS on a mainframe. You guys probably don't even know what SAS or mainframes are, but you know, I was a little bit better. And back then, the technology they were using, and I don't know if Coker ever mentioned this or not. He did the McB cards. Yeah. Did he talk about the McB cards? So they were recording their data on nest cards like we do now and writing them writing it down but their way of analyzing it is these cards had little holes all around them and i guess you would punch out a certain hole for golden eagle and a different hole for prairie falcon and when you wanted to sort them out you would run this long pin through all these cards and pull up all the golden eagle cards or whatever well this was even in 1977, that was pretty primitive. So they really needed someone with a few analytical skills. And so they first brought me on as a temporary and um, later um, as a, well, before I became permanent, we had almost all of us were called WAEs, when actually employed. And we, had, we were forced to be take off for two weeks each year and get unemployment, and it was a little extra vacation, and that was okay. And they brought me on. Um, the wildlife registers were just loaded at that time with Vietnam veterans who had 10 and 5-point preferences. And even though I had scored as high as you can score, I wasn't competitive on the wildlife roster at that time. So they picked me up as a statistician. But later, I became a research wildlife biologist. So... Do you have a memory from uh, like an early visit or maybe the first time that you um, went to the Snake River Canyon area? I do, because I came out in February, drove up from Logan, and um, Al Bammon um, drove me out and um, drove me through the area. And boy, it looked a lot different than it looks now. Um, it was... What struck me was the mosaic of habitat types, which you don't have anymore. Um, there was shad scale, there was the winter fat, there was the sagebrush, and it was all very different. And it, it did make sense to me that you would want to look at prey availability and vulnerability um, in how it differs among those habitats. And so it looked like a pretty interesting and challenging environment. Um, I think I still was kind of a person who had grown up mostly around trees so the openness was it, it it has to grow on you now i need openness i have to have openness trees are very i'm very claustrophobic in trees but i think i went through a stage where oh, i need trees but i think everybody goes through that were you interested in birds of prey before you came here or was it you know the area and your experiences in the snake river canyon that that led to that no, I was interested in birds of prey. I, I did get my undergraduate degree from Colorado State in, as a wildlife in wildlife biology, and I was more of a general wildlife person than a specific raptors person. But my master's project did involve bald eagles wintering in South Dakota, so I had um, that's where I did my master's, and it made sense to keep on working with raptors. Gotcha. So I had already by the time I. Um, showed up. I had already met Coker. I think I'd already met Dunstan and other people at from Raptor meetings. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, was was there a sense of, uh, I mean, did you immediately recognize, like, the uniqueness of the area for Birds of Prey? I mean, did you, like, you know, was there a moment where you, like, 
realize that the abundances were much higher than other areas? Well, I think I'd mainly been told that and read about it in the reports. So you were kind of expecting to see that. There wasn't, you know, a big surprise when you got here, like, oh, my God, there's so many prairie falcons. No, I don't think I ever had that. So clearly you did have an interest in birds of prey before coming to this area. Where did that where did that interest come from initially? My interest in wildlife probably came from my mother who who dragged me to the zoo all the, when I from the time I was big old enough to be in a stroller, I guess. So she took me to the zoo regularly in, in the Brookfield Zoo and um outside of Chicago initially. So she instilled an interest in wildlife. Now, specifically raptors, it probably came from um, my master's work. I don't think I was any more interested in raptors than ducks or prairie chickens or anything else when I graduated, did my undergraduate work. So it's probably um, just chance that I ended up in the raptor world. In fact... Oh, I could tell a story. Um, I might have ended up being a bighorn sheep biologist um, because I was the top of the list for a summer job on about bighorn sheep for the Colorado Division of Wildlife when they said, no, we can't hire a woman for this job. And I still have a letter that says you are not being... It was a case where we'd all had been to a summer camp and the, the, the fish and game person or Division of Wildlife person said... Give me your best man for this job. And the professor gave him my name instead of a man. And he and so and and they wrote back and said, I'm sorry, but no, we can't hire a woman in this position. So I still have that letter. It it was very blatant. But going back to the McBee cards and how I my real contribution, I feel to the whole uh, the special research report and, and getting the thing established was really in the analysis, in the office rather than in the field. Um, there were lots of good field biologists out there. There weren't many good office people. And so um, that's what I did. Is started, like I got there, okay, we've got to stop having these McBee parts. We've got to hook up to a mainframe. We've got to start automating this data, which did involve key punch cards, by the way. But anyway, our contact in the BLM state office was a man named Lowell Dahl. And he, they didn't call it IT then, they called it ADP, Automated Data Processing, because it was mostly about payroll and procurement and business type things. That's the only thing that the BLM had really computerized at that point. And so I was always constantly bugging him for equipment and software. And he did, finally he said, why don't you just go get married and have kids and get out of my face? <laughs> mm-hmm. wow. Yeah. wow. Yeah. So that was Lil Doll. But we did get computers, and we did hook up first to the Bureau of Reclamation's cyber mainframe, and then, we, then BLM finally got its own mainframe, a Honeywell. And I kept going to Denver to get training in that, and... Um, and there was a genius guy who worked for BLM who was developing databases. He was so far ahead of his time, but he never made the switch to PCs. And he, made, he developed a program called um, REX, which later became Aspen. 
and he built these database this database um, as a BLM employee, and we used that, and that was our the, our basis. It's still that that the program still has more functionality than DBase and a lot of other things that later became on came up on PCs, but um, they he never made that transition. His name was Dan Haggerty, and he was a genius, I think, one of the smartest people I've ever met. So he helped us through that part, and we had got all our data on the Honeywell and were able to manipulate it and analyze it. That left, but the Honeywell didn't have GIS capabilities. And I kept saying, we need the spatial stuff. And we found out that um, the Riverside, California office was in the process of developing their California desert plan, and they had gone out and gotten commercial GIS software called Comark, Compass um, GIS, and um, we tapped into their data general, um, and we had special phone lines and things, And but it would take all night to run these things. We'd set up a question and then go home, and then in the morning, maybe it had failed and maybe it had gone through. And it's still like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh. But um, so we were the first um, BLM people to use GIS in Idaho. Um, Esri, Jack Dangerman was just starting Esri at the time, and he, I remember him calling me to say, what can I do to get BLM, you know, get some jobs with BLM? And, um, but as you know, he went on to much bigger and better things. <laughs> so. Okay, so I, I kind of want to... Uh Take a step back for a minute, right? Um, because you arrive here in 1977, and all this stuff has already gone on regarding, you know, the the protection of the Snake River Canyon area. Um, so there was a, a level of protection for uh, a portion of the area that's now considered the NCA. Um, so, like, big picture, you know, what were you stepping into? You know, like, what was the situation that was happening and like what what were you tasked with um you know for folks that aren't as familiar with um all the history as we are you know uh talk big picture about sort of like what you were working on and the significance of it okay so when i first got here um there had already been two years of radio telemetry data that were had been collected by tom dunston and his his people um, and that they had found that prairie falcons were ranging way beyond the canyon um, and way beyond the moratorium area that had been set up in 1975 as a study area. Um, they, in, they had set up a study area in 1975 based on the best available guesses on how far a prairie falcon would range from its nest to forage, or a prairie falcon, or a golden eagle. Nobody really, it, it was just a guess. Well, it turned out that prairie falcons needed to go much farther. So that was already known when I got here, and they were already talking about um, expanding the study area. And this, I guess the study area had already been expanded when I got here, I think. But things were already going in motion to try and um, decide to develop a report and an environmental impact statement to permanently set aside 
this larger area. And so that's the research that we were all working on. I don't think I remember. I'd have to go back and look at all the dates of, and Cokert probably gave you all those dates of, of, of when each thing happens. He's, he keeps telling the story of how I came unglued when Andrus wanted this, the report six months earlier. I have no recollection of that, but <laughs> I don't. I don't it, it, we were under a lot of pressure to do a lot in a short time frame, that's for sure. Um, but um, we did. Yeah. We brought in a lot of experts um, to advise us and to check up on us. And um, we had John Weens. We had um, quite a few people come in and kind of validate what we did or steer us in a slightly different direction. So maybe talk a little bit about like that that pressure, right? It sounds like there was pressure, you know, like political pressure, maybe, to, like, uh, get some results from this research? I mean, like, uh, how did that, I don't, like, uh, not necessarily how did it affect the, the research, but, like, what was the, what was the feeling, you know what I mean? Like, were, were you guys aware and conscious that, like, you were doing this with a distinct purpose of, like, this could lead to the expansion of the protected area? Yeah, I think we were aware of that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the pressure kind of came from Dean Bibles, I think, who kept asking us to come up with data, if you want this. we were. Did Mike tell you about the little trailer we were working in? Oh, on Collins Avenue. Okay. This was the, at the time that we were all in this little trailer, a house trailer with, that was broken up into office spaces. And... Um, it was kind of intense at times because we were kind of crowded into this little trailer. Trailer. It was on Collins Avenue where the Bureau of Reclamation building is now. I mean, so you, you talked a little bit about like the logistics of the field research that you were involved with at this time and sort of the role that you played. Um, but, um, you know, like what, what, was, what was it that like really drew your attention in and like made this, like where, what were you getting your enjoyment from this project out of, you know, like was, you know, you talked about how you felt like your most important role was in the office and, you know, figuring out uh, sort of data analysis stuff more than field research. But were you still spending time in the field? Some, but my main role was, like I said, there were lots of good field biologists. There was Al Bamman, there was John Doremus, they were they were out there doing what they needed to do in the field, but on Cokert too. But um, they just kind of dumped the data when it came back into the office, and I was the one who was who had to make sense of it, pretty much. And the enjoyment, I it it was, it was an exciting time. It was an exciting time to rub shoulders with some of these experts that came in and helped us. Um, that was exciting. Um, it was fun to work under pressure, I guess, with a goal. Did you ever have like a like an aha moment with the data analysis, like where you had where you figured out something definitive about it that you knew you could take then? I think John Weens really helped us get through some of our our blocks. Um, I know he was the one who came up with 
Well, you don't have to worry about whether they fledge or not. You just have to set a cutoff point. Say, pick a day of how many days old, and if they make it, they make it, and then you've got a, a metric that you can compare across time and across areas. He and he, that was one of the things he came up with, and I think he he came up with a few other things that just that we were kind of stuck on that he would just open our eyes and, oh yeah. <laughs> so in studies of reproduction of raptors or really any altricial birds, people talk about, well, a nest was successful if young fledge. Okay. But rarely are you able to see them actually fledge if it's if you're studying more than five nests. Um, and if you go back after they fledge, you can't find them. So the best thing to do is to say, okay, let's pick a day, pick a time uh, after between something um, where the mortality is minimal until they fledge and pick that age and say they either made it or they didn't. And that was kind of what we did. And so that's why. And, and, and by doing that, by picking a certain age, um, you can compare across studies, across locations. Um, but there are still a lot of people who never say, who lump downy young with they have to be all the way stepping out of the nest. Do you have a memory of uh, meeting Morley Nelson for the first time? You know, I can't remember meeting him for the very first time. Or is there just any memory of like a particular interaction that really stands out? Uh, yeah, I remember seeing him a lot. And um, I don't remember the first time. I remember him at some banquet in Boise, where he talked about the whole problem is this country is the religion and the military. <laughs> and it's like, yes! <laughs> but I also remember running him into him with, in the bookstore with my mother when he started, telling, started flirting with my mother and telling war stories, I think. <laughs> I think those are... But um, he was a character. And he had a lot... Oh, another thing. Um, I, I spent quite a bit of time trying to protect the Boise River for the benefit of bald eagles. And so I spent lots of time testifying before city councils and county commissions and things about when they wanted to put a house right on the river. And sometimes they'd listen and sometimes they wouldn't. But if Morley showed up, oh my God, they always listened to Morley. And it was, and he'd just go on a rant about oh, how the birds were, you know, they're most beautiful in the world and they, they embody America and all this. And Vern Bisterfelt and everybody were like, yeah, yeah, okay, no, no development. And I'm like, you know, I've been giving all this scientific data and trying to talk to them about disturbance buffers and flushing distances. No. They're the noble, most noble bird in the world. Yep. <laughs> so that was, that, that was, I mean, it was good. It was great when he'd show up. How about uh, Cecil Andrus? Do you have a memory of meeting him for the first time or just a particular interaction that's, that stands out? Yeah, I don't remember the first time I ever met him, and I never really knew him well. The best interaction I had was with Leo when we ran into him. Was it two years, about a year before he died mm -hmm. yep. at Zupas? And he had a broken leg because he'd slipped on the snow. It must have been that bad winter. And um, 
he was sitting all by himself at a table, and Lee and I said, "Let's go over and sit." And we had a we had lunch with him, and it was just delightful, yeah. wasn't it? It was just he remembered everything about that we had fed to him. He never really knew who I was, I don't think. And yet, you know, I'd say this about the birds of prey. Oh, yeah, those ground squirrels. And he'd just start parroting back everything we'd given to him. And he remembered it all. It was really kind of fun. Ooh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, he was just, he was telling the story just like, yeah, I wrote all that so you would understand it. And you do. Yay! <laughs> um, so I want to talk about, like, sort of the conclusion of that first stage of the research, at least that, that you were involved with in, in the late 70s. Um, and I, I'm just curious to like hear like what happened from your perspective, right? I mean, we've heard like, you know, we've heard the perspective like sort of from the political end of the political maneuvering that went on in, um, you know, uh, at, at that time period. Um, but I'm, I'm curious, like what that looked like from, from your perspective. Okay, so we released the EIS and the special research report in 1979. And that... And this is, sorry, sorry this is the report that, that essentially shows, like, yes, this area should be expanded based on the habitat requirements of the prairie falcon? Right. Um, I think there were, there were a few goals to, of our, our report to establish the uniqueness of the area. Um to establish the spatial needs, and to determine uh, whether agriculture was compatible or incompatible with the raptor's needs. So th- those were the, the, the principal goals. And, of course, the EIS, it was all about agricultural development. And should I go back and talk more about that, I guess? So the whole reason for the research <laughs> was that high-lift pumping technology had become feasible and economical in the mid-1970s. And so there were a lot of people who wanted to um, obtain title to public or federal land through the Desert Land Entry or the Carry Act. And um, the BLM was still in the business of giving away land under these homestead-type acts, if you could prove you could you could farm them. Um, and so that was the whole impetus for the research project um, because the natural area that had been established in 1971, as Cecil Andrus always said, was um, it, 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 it was the bedroom for the raptors and it wasn't their kitchen. So we knew that we had to, that it was all about agriculture. So there were a lot of real estate interests as well as just disgruntled people like there are disgruntled people today who came out in opposition to setting aside an area. Um, the, proposed, the proposal in the EIS w- was pretty much restricted to agriculture and some mining which I don't think the mining ever mattered much. There was, no, there was no real pressure to do any mining in that area. So it was all about agriculture. The, the EIS proposed to continue grazing. It, it did not identify any conflicts between raptors and grazing. So the cattlemen were, 
they weren't in opposition. I'm not sure I would say they were in support either, but they were kind of neutral. And I think Dean Bibles probably had a lot to do with keeping it that way. Um, but there were a lot of interests that um, came up, and the, the EIS hearings were somewhat entertaining. There was one man who said, you've got your chuckers on the hand of God, and you've got the eagles on the hand of the devil. <laughs> I now I'm good friends with his grandchildren, but that was him. Um, I won't say who he was, but... <laughs> <laughs> it was there were entertaining moments like that and um so um they kind of stalled everything and then came along 1980 um with the and they never got the legislation introduced um it, and Dean knows all about that and, to, and and Reagan was elected and yeah almost immediately we were sent scurrying it was more the lands people who had to because they they decided they were going to withdraw the area before Cecil Andrus left uh, office as secretary and so they had to do all the legal descriptions which hadn't been done and oh god i can remember them just all night long they were doing legal descriptions and we were scurrying around i don't go back one of the things when we were originally doing that boundary, um, Bibles would have us because we predicted, okay, if we only had half the area, what would that do to the Prairie Falcon population stability? And I think some of that is in the special research report. But some of these boundary manipulations, Bibles would want us to seem like, well, what if we cut out this part? What would that do to the prairie falcon population? So we'd run these chunk, 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 chunk on the data general. And so we'd have these, like, all these simulations running before that. But anyway, so then the EIS process came and um, went. And with Reagan came the Sagebrush Rebellion. And there was a lot of opposition, so everything just went underground, kind of. Um, you, I think I learned more about what happened um, back in Washington from what Bibles told us um, this time. I had heard a, I'd actually heard a different story that Bibles said wasn't true, that um, someone, of course, Reagan brought in Jim Watt, and someone told me that Watt was convinced that he shouldn't reverse this because there was more scientific information backing this proposal than any other proposals, including grazing, which the BLM was just then starting to do impact analyses on livestock grazing. They tried to get through a report. It was just that big. I've got a copy of it nation for, that would cover the whole nation. And he said, you know, if you say go against this, you have don't have any of the data on your other decisions. That's what I heard, but Bible said he never heard that. So it might must not be true. I mean, I, I guess like what I wonder from your perspective is because um, obviously you weren't involved in like the nitty gritty sort of politicking and preparing of, you know, uh, uh, paperwork for the withdrawal that took place after the election. Like, I, I guess what I wonder is, like, 
were were you and 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 the folks you were working with on this EIS like were you aware that like leading up to that election that things that 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 a lot rode on that particular election for this area like that that was really important for you know what would become the NCA I don't remember I just remember um being pretty shocked that Reagan won, almost, almost as shocked as I was that Trump won. And gosh, I can, you know, the morning after Trump won, I was going into the same office because I was going to a RAC meeting. And I'm like, oh, God, I can remember going into this building when, I, when Reagan won. It was just like, ah! it was mm, crazy. Yeah. So I, I think we were surprised that Reagan won. Mm. I guess I'd have to go back and look at the polls. I don't remember that. I don't think we were that fearful. And I don't know that we knew that James Watt would be the secretary. Mm -hmm. No, so I don't remember that. It was after the election that there was a lot of scrambling. Mm -hmm. So anyways, I mean, all that scrambling took place, right? And they were able to, you know, take these steps to, like, do the withdrawal, giving that 20-year period... Um, of protection, that 20-year opportunity to actually set it aside as an NCA. Um, But obviously that didn't happen for over a decade. Um, So, I mean, you know, what what happened after that? You know, I mean, you continued working with Prairie Falcons and continue doing this long-term monitoring? No? Like, what what happened next? So we got our... ourselves through the Reagan administration in a couple of different ways. And in some ways, the Reagan administration was a good thing for us because it allowed us to write up our data for scientific publication. Of course, I mean, the special research report was sort, was refereed in a certain way, but it was still an unpublished report. So we were able to focus on really getting our information into the scientific journals because our budgets were cut back. Um, some of it continued for a couple of years because there's just a lag effect. But um, we were able to really focus on publishing our data, and that was a good thing. The other thing we did during the Reagan administration was we partnered with industry. And that's when we um, we had the cooperative project with Pacific PPNL at that time on the on the new transmission line that had just gone in. And we also had a partnership with Idaho Power, who was reconstructing the Swan Falls Dam. And we had a disturbance study that uh, Tony Holtheisen um, led on the effects of all the construction activity on prairie falcons. So the field work then focused on these these questions that and and with that with the with the PPNL survey we were able to. Um, continue monitoring golden eagles because we had the helicopter money so we just oh we can go over in the canyon and check those eagles too and with the prairie falcons we could do some monitoring of of productivity so those partnerships with industry carried us through the 80s and then came the 90s when we had the national guard study so it was in 1988 um that the guard um released proposals that they want to to really enhance and expand their use of what was then the OTA and now it's the OCTA. And there was some public resistance. There was quite a bit of press on it. I remember Steve Stubner writing an article. 
And um, a lot of the um, environmental groups, especially like Hawk Mountain, and everybody was up in arms that this would happen in the Birds of Prey area. Well, it turned out that it was the impetus for another integrated, multifaceted research project about the effects of National Guard activity. And then also, by that time, we were concerned about fire. And so those were the two big objectives and what was happening with the Birds of Prey area. Fires, by the way, I don't know if... Um, when I came here, as I mentioned, the, the area, there, hadn't, there weren't any fires. It, it, and the whole area was either winter fat, sagebrush, or shad scale. And there were a few pieces of grassland, but it was mostly Sandberg's bluegrass. It wasn't there. Was, yeah, there was cheatgrass out there, but not a lot. And um, as understory mainly. And the first fires were in September of 1981. That's when the first fires came, and that's when the asbestos desert finally burned, and people were not. Um, it was a big shock. Wet spring and dry summer, so there was lots of growth, and then it all dried out, and it, um, it really burned up. Um, and that was the beginning of, of that cycle, and in the 80s, then more and more fires all the way through 96, and that's when things were a problem. So the National Guard studies happened, um, they, I guess they started in 90 or 91, um, and it was almost like... Um, <laughs> deja vu with, you know, we had people looking at the prey, we had people doing raptor telemetry, we had people doing vegetation, and um, the only difference was it was 20 years, and there were, the technology had improved a lot, and so there was, uh, there were, the tools for doing these things were much improved. Um, but it was during that guard study, the guard got more and more involved politically than in the whole Birds of Prey area. And so did the Peregrine Fund. The Peregrine Fund moved their headquarters here. I, I believe it was 1984, if I remember correctly. But um, so it was the Guard and the Peregrine Fund that kind of got a group together that we were not a part of at all. I think they involved the district manager of the BLM at the time. And they would meet at the local Mexican restaurant. And... Um, talk and we'd only hear about it third hand so we never really we were not involved in those negotiations that led up to Larry Larocco's um, introduction of the bill um, in what 93 mm -hmm. but that all happened in the middle of the National Guard project because the Guard project started in 91 it didn't really wrap up until well, um, a lot of the field work wrapped up in 94 but not reports weren't written until 96 so that that was in the middle of the of the guard project and of course one of the things in the legislation was that the guard activity would continue and that was uh, the, the research hadn't been completed so right it's interesting that like yeah you're only halfway through this research meant to determine whether or not the guard activity is impacting the raptors and this piece of legislation patched passes halfway through making the decision already. <laughs> right. 
I imagine that's right. frustrating as a researcher. It, it was frustrating, and it was not only that activity. It was the, the, the thing that bothered us about the legislation at the time is that the burden of proof for any activity was that you had to prove that it was incompatible or else it could continue rather than the other way around. So, I mean, what, what did you find out through, you know, what was the ultimate conclusion? There were some um, effects on, of guard activity on raptors, but they weren't probably as extreme as we had maybe feared. Mm-hmm. And so things pretty much kept going on. But it did change the guards' activities in some ways. They, they became much more responsive. Before the research, if there was a fire in the guard area, they let it burn. Now they don't. They put it out more quickly probably than the BLM does. So, and they, they have changed their activities so that their tanks only don't go through the best sagebrush habitat and things like that. So the whole process did result in some changes in the way they did their um, operations. Were there any other, like, interesting results that, that came out of that, that research that, that you know, uh, hadn't come out of the, the previous? Well, the, the research period spanned another drought period um, and a different type of drought. The, the, when I came, it was a winter drought. This one was more of a spring drought and had a different type of effect on ground squirrel populations, which B. Van Horn and her group were able to, to document, and that was really important. In my opinion, nothing that we learned in the guard project um, contradicted anything we had learned in the earlier project. It just reinforced it, and again, with more precision and refinement. So, I mean, we've talked about, you know, these two, like, periods of of intensive research going on um, within what is now the NCA. Um, But you know, also, as you explained, like throughout the 80s, there was still an uh, ongoing monitoring effort, and there was still a monitoring effort that continued beyond the, the guard study, correct? For a few years, yep. Okay. So, I mean, I guess, like, my next question for you is just, like, to talk about the importance of long-term monitoring for, you know, I mean, like, not just prairie falcons, but, but in general, um, but then also, like, you know, why that was being done and the significance of that um, in the NCA. I don't know how managers can understand whether their management is being effective or not unless you monitor the results. And the result, the the purpose is enhanced or maintain raptor populations. And if you don't know if that's happening, I don't know how you know whether you're doing good or bad. Um, It's that simple. Um, And long-term research is so important. If you take any two-year pieces out of our long-term data set, you could get completely erroneous. You could come to completely erroneous conclusions because that's what it's all about. And um, one of our field managers said, you know, that is the role of the federal government. Universities can take these, you know, graduate studies two or three years at a time, but they're never going to look at the long-term picture, and that's why we need um, the federal government to be, to be supporting, um, supporting that. So, so, yeah, the next 
step of monitoring. There was some. So two things happened in the early 2000s. Um, the BLM was writing its resource management plan for the Birds of Prey area. And I had been able to secure some funding through USGS for a study of uh, prey falcon movements. And with those two things combined in the early 2000s, we were able to get more monitoring done. Because um, for prey falcons, it had, it, we, we'd had monitoring through the guard period. Again, somehow we got funding for a partial study in 1997, and then there was a gap, and then in the early 2000s, we were able to, again, monitor prairie falcons. Now, golden eagles have been continuously monitored, um, mainly because of Cokert's volunteerism, as well as the volunteerism of some others of us, but it's mainly Cokert who has carried it on and um, without any much support at all mm -hmm. since the two early 2000s mm -hmm. yeah i'm curious to hear about like the this point when the monitoring effort for prairie falcons stopped i'm assuming it stopped because funding ran out but like i'm also assuming that you and other people probably made an effort to like find that funding or find a way to ensure that there was some level of monitoring continuing i mean i'm just trying to uh i'm curious to know like what you know, what your efforts looked like at that point, and, like, I'm sure there was frustration with the fact that it, this wasn't going to continue. Yeah, I think priorities just changed with the BLM. Leadership didn't really see... I guess I see that as my biggest professional failure, is that we didn't set anything up that would last long-term. That's, that's probably my biggest regret. And one of the reasons I stay involved after having retired for 10 years is that we didn't we didn't set anything up so that the managers we have to keep re-educating each manager that comes and goes i'm not sure what we did wrong but we didn't do it right and um yeah funding ran out um there's just been but you know that you've heard the good news that we are going to have something happening next year, I hope. So that is good news. Um, I think it might be because we've been haranguing so much. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that we all got together and um, set up something where you didn't have to do a full canyon survey. You could do a sampling effort. That was, that was one of the last things we did in the early 2000s, in 2003, I guess it was, um, to set up something to figure out how we could reduce the effort and sample and come up with something that could be compared to a full canyon survey for prairie falcons. So, I mean, I, I, I guess I'm just wondering, like, were you, like banging on people's doors at the BLM to be like, hey, this is really important, like, fund this? I mean, were you, like, were there individuals that are just like, no, this isn't important? Like, were you told straight up, like, yeah, we just don't care about continuing this monitoring effort? Like, you know. Well, we were working, so we got moved to USGS in 1996. So it wasn't totally our place to be banging on doors. Um I, 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 we should have been, maybe we should have done more. I don't know. But yeah, there was, 
There just never was a long-term commitment. We had we had all sorts of raptor moni- manage monitoring plans set up through the years, but they just never went anywhere. The last thing I did when I when I retired was, um, well, Coker did it. I said, "This is what I want for my retirement," and th- there was a, a symposium in that, in two thousand eight. In the I think it was June of two thousand eight. I had already retired. But of bringing people together to bringing more all the, some of these experts that had advised us before and that were at the top of their fields currently to look at, OK, wh- what should be the priorities for management? And there, that report is there. It kind of has just languished. Um, and it's been frustrating because the, everybody agreed on the priorities, prairie falcons and golden eagles. But... Um, Everybody, whenever a graduate student would come along, they'd take the low-hanging fruit. Oh, I think screech owls are easier to study. Or I think, um, you know, ferruginous hawks. And I'm glad everybody's doing the ferruginous hawk work. Don't get me wrong. But the prioritization hasn't, didn't, didn't go over that well. So, but that's what that that workshop that um, was held was. That was my last stand, I guess in trying to see that monitoring kept going. But here we are. I mean, as you mentioned, like, you know, we're, we're in a moment right now um, where um, it seems likely that that monitoring effort is going to get restarted 15 years later. We have a meeting next week on it, so that'll be good. So does that, like, I mean, what what are the like emotions like does that bring up like emotional feelings that this might actually like get restarted i'm happy to see it restarted and i understand why it it needs to be restarted at the sampling level i i hope that if the sampling particularly if the sampling suggests that we have a problem that we will expand and get funding for a full canyon survey so karen earlier in the interview you mentioned that you when you first came in you saw your role as being um, someone in the office that was analyzing the data that the field crew were bringing in and sort of hammering that data into a report to, to publish. Um, and and we've known each other a long time, and I know that you're a prolific publisher. Do you have an idea of the number of scientific publications that you've either authored or co-authored in the last 41 years? I don't, but Cokert does, and he, they've, he, they've just pulled that together as the NCA science working team. I wonder if there is any other, like, geographic area that has such a large number, like, so much intensive research has gone into specifically, like, raptor populations. Yeah, I'm sure that we have more publications on raptors than, from this area than any place else. But we also have... A lot of publications on prey populations and soils and vegetation and um, this science working group, we didn't even know that people were doing things on climate and things like that until everybody got together. Now, probably there's probably been more publications come out of some of the national parks and things on in general, for sure, but probably not raptors. I wonder, like, what research we have, if any, that shows the shifts in abundance, if any, over the course of like the last 40 so years? Well, we've certainly seen a decline in the number of golden eagle nesting pairs. 
if we would renew our survey efforts, we'd probably see that some of the species for a while, we had some information that Swainson's hawks and burrowing owls were increasing about that. And with prairie falcons, we cannot say. I think it's time to talk about Gateway West. We're speaking for an audience that like has no awareness of what Gateway West even is, right? So even though we're in this room, like probably fairly familiar with it, you know, give us sort of the the big picture. Okay. Well, I think the first time I became aware of the Gateway West project was in March of 2008, right after I retired. But I was aware of plans to build additional transmission lines in the area um, before that. And when the RMP was being developed, um, they went back and forth. And initially, they were going to have a corridor, a power line corridor along what we call the Big Baja line. And then suddenly, John Sullivan switched it and said, nope, we can't have any, there won't be any power lines, they'll be out in the Oahe somewhere. And I raised the issue, I said, wait a minute, (laughs) we did research that showed that these transmission lines not only are, they can be beneficial to raptors. Well, well, it didn't, they ended up, they went through several iterations of the RMP, some of which I was involved in, but in the end, they said, nope, you've got to put them outside. Well, it turned out that Sullivan was getting pressure from the Bush administration because they were promoting what was known as the West Wide Energy Corridor. And that was to go, and they had already excluded, proposed, I think at that time, the Birds of Prey area, yeah, it was a national conservation area. So they had excluded that. So the first meeting I became aware of was in Murphy in March, and they um, we first saw it, and I said, there's no reason why you can't put it through the Birds of Prey area, because all the, everybody was up in arms, the, oh, they were going to go through CUNA. In, to avoid the northern part instead of going along the, the existing 500 kV. And um, so I became an ally of all the locals <laughs> because I was telling them what they wanted to hear. But that was what I strongly believed. It, because if you ran it through, well, <clears throat> I was more concerned about the sage grouse than the people in CUNA, to be honest. <laughs> But I understood why the people in CUNA didn't want it going over them. But if you cut across the Owyhee front, um, you'd be totally wiping out any remnant sage-grouse populations there. And um, so I was very much opposed to that and arguing all along that it could be in the Birds of Prey area. And it took almost 10 years, I guess. Well, now I guess nine years um, for something to happen. But um, I wrote this all up, by the way, um, because I, um, well, I went to several public hearings. And then I forget what year I became a member of the Boise District BLM Resource Advisory Council. And that was one of the issues they asked us to take on. And Neil Rimby and I headed up a subcommittee that went through all possible alternatives. And I represented the Raptor Research Foundation on that committee, and they said, tell us what you've been doing. So I finally did, and I've got a big report that I can share with you that from my standpoint, my involvement um, 
in that and, you know, just knocking our heads against the wall. We would win the support of almost every local BLM manager that we, that we encountered because it was the only thing that made sense. But we had people in Washington who just were so dug in. And then we had the Conservation Lands Foundation that was also dug in. And they were convinced that this would set a precedent that would um, open up all other conservation lands to power lines and pipelines and whatever else. Um, I think the approach they did, they took, is much more dangerous in setting a precedent. Because, of course, what they finally did, and it, the, the BLM guy would not move. The, Neil Cornsey just wouldn't listen. Um, and um, so he denied all, even after. They, they gave us the opportunity to work on a supplemental. They deferred the decision on segments eight and nine. Um, and then he came out the night before Trump's inauguration and said, nope. I'm deciding to run it through the Oahis, after which he was sued. And um, <clears throat> they could have let it go and let – well, of course, there still is no BLM director, but um, they could have let the new BLM do it. But instead, they did this legislation that cuts out a, the, the rights of way along the route that we wanted. And it, it's I still contend it's the right place to put it, but – by cutting that out of the birds of prey area, I think it's, you know, it's just so unfortunate because as, as Dean Bibles was always proud to say, this was one of the few conservation areas or even any kind of protected area whose boundaries were based on scientific information. And now they're not. And the piece that they want to add down near Hammett is sort of a nobody seems to know why exactly they picked that other than it was a large block that was adjacent, and there wasn't too much opposition from the permittees, although now I hear there might be. But anyway, um, it makes no sense to me how they did it. I mean, many of us were relieved that, it, okay, this is one way to get around it, but it wasn't the right way to do it. So can you pause and, and like, explain what the, the, the final decision was and, like, how they decided to, like, oh, we're going to run it here, but, like, withdraw this area and at like explain that okay, in, well, in greater detail because like I, I think that's there there's it because it's bizarre and and it's and it's nuanced and uh, well as I understand it representative Simpson and the, and the people from the conservation lands drew up this legislation that said um, we are withdrawing these rights of way like I think a mile wide corridor on uh, around the route that the rack had recommended um, from the birds of prey area, and you are hereby BLM. You are hereby ordered to allow a right of way um, along for, for a power line along it, within that withdrawn area. They acted a little too hastily, though, because once they had that, they had a <clears throat> a right of way established from. That one end of the Birds of Prey area to the other, but they forgot to say, well, it didn't connect to anything that had been fully vetted through NEPA. <laughs> so they had to go back and do another environmental assessment to connect the outside parts together, out, the parts outside the NCA together, and that took more time. But um, now the, the boundary, now it's not a 
intact boundary. It's sliced up into parts because those two rights of way go transect the birds of prey national conservation. What was the natural birds of prey national conservation area? So, so it's just it's 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 like a bizarre compromise, right? Because like the power line is now going like following the route that we that you recommended, but technically the land that it's on has been withdrawn from the NCA and then they added additional land in another area that's like not really great raptor habitat and it's like whatever who cares right yeah it wasn't evaluated as raptor habitat it wasn't included in the initial boundary some of it was a piece of it was included in the biological boundary but not most of it and um, my understanding is that that isn't going to that change is not going to go into effect till 2020 anyway so there is time to maybe relook at this and maybe, as Dean Bible said, any legislation can be undone. Um, but my fear is that um, when they want to run a power line maybe across the Grand Canyon or something where it shouldn't be, um, all they have to do is to get their local representative to say, oh, let's put a piece of legislation, attach it onto a budget bill, and it's done. Mm-hmm. Withdraw it from the national park or the, whatever it is. And... That, to me, is scarier than saying we've done our due diligence, we've decided, we've looked at all the alternatives of where to put this line, and we feel that this has the most, has the least damage on any resource and, in fact, is compatible with the objectives of the conservation area. It's interesting, right, because it's like at its base level, as you said, to run a power line through this particular NCA is no big deal. There are already power lines. There's already power lines, and power lines don't negatively impact the raptors that are there. So it's it's just it's 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 very interesting to me. Like because it's initially it seems like it shouldn't be a big deal, but the reason it has become a big deal is because everybody's concerned about the precedent and what that means for other protected areas, right? And it sets a precedent whether you withdraw that land from the NCA, so it's not technically, there isn't a power line technically on NCA land. It, 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 it's, it's so... It's, it's silly. So, and interestingly, so as I said, this proposal surfaced to the, the Gateway West proposal was probably in the works, I don't know how long, but it surfaced to the public in 2008. And it wasn't until 2012 that, they Washington office issued an uh, an instruction memorandum that said no new power lines. But there were some words about unless you can show that you, there's no other place to put it, it's and but they wouldn't listen to that part. And I mean, I guess one of the things that I wonder is, is there or has there at any point been people that like quest, are questioning the need? put this power line through this area in the first place? Oh, yeah. We've had, there are lots of discussions about that. We had a lot of discussions about that early on in our RAC subcommittee meetings. Um, This line may never be built. I mean, who knows? Um, But Idaho Power had a lot of projections, and that was kind of off the table for us. They said we need not one but two power lines, 
and um, they showed it based on the population projections and the need for redundancy in case of outages that they, they needed both. And we, we had lots of discussions with that, and we um, just gave in. There are lots of people who still think they're not needed. There are lots of people who think they will never be built. I don't think it'll be built in my lifetime. I really don't. Well, um, you know, the the eastern part of Gateway West was authorized in 2013. And I don't think any construction has begun, has it? So that was no, that was 5 years ago. They could have they got their they it, it was okay. Nothing has happened. I think it's segments one through three that start in Wyoming and come this way, and I don't think there's been any construction. I don't think so. Uh, so we're segment eight and nine, which is at the far western end of this 1,100 or 1,200-mile-long transmission line. And that might be one quick clarification. Like Transmission lines are different from distribution lines. Absolutely. Transmission lines do not pose an electrocution hazard. Um, and so a transmission line through an NCA is one thing. Uh, distribution lines tighter spacing, more more um, chance for collision or electrocution. Very definitely. We're, we learned a lot about, the, in, in that RAC subcommittee, we had lots of briefings from power engineers, and we all learned a lot. You don't look, you, you're, when you go down the highway, you're, oh, that's a double-circuited, what, 320? <laughs> no, no, it's like... <laughs> well, I, I think, I mean, that's that's, I think... An, an important important point of clarification that you made, Steve, and you know what what it makes me think of it, it it makes me think of you know the how important the connection between Raptors and power lines um, has been, and there's a, a strong connection with the NCA because that was Morley Nelson's huge campaign trying to make sure that that uh, power lines didn't kill so many Raptors and making sure that. Um power transmission and distribution was compatible with Raptors and demonstrating that. And that's why all of my letters said, Morley, your name, this is the Morley Nelson, Birds of Prey area. And he would have wanted to show that. And of course, he was instrumental in routing and putting up those platforms on that on the existing 500 kV he they brought him in and he said don't put you don't need a platform here but you need a platform here and and I think he was actually involved in some of the routing before routing became as political as it is now and um, he was right he was totally right about all of it let's talk just a little bit more generally about like the future of the NCA um, and I'm just curious to sort of hear your thoughts, like you know, are are you hopeful? I mean, we've talked about sort of a few a few hopeful things that 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 are are happening, but I'm sure you have concerns, and uh, I'm curious to hear what they are. Well, my concerns are for the habitat, and as we know, um, most of the habitat still hasn't recovered from fires in the 1980s. I don't know if it ever will. I don't know if there've been some rehabilitation efforts. Some of them have worked out, some of them not so much. We're going to learn more about from the soda fire about what works and what doesn't in certain soil types and rainfall regimes. But I think that's why we need to keep monitoring raptors to see if, um, if they are able to adapt to these changing habitats. If they are, maybe we'll just resign ourselves to living, having an altered environment. If it's a problem, 
then maybe we need to redouble our efforts um, to find out how we can restore habitat. But I, I think we need to be open to the idea that maybe we can never restore the habitat to the way it was when I came in 1977. But before we, we, we need to be open to that option, but before we make the decision, we need to see what the raptors are doing. Now, in the early 2000s, the raptors were coping. Um, at least for a few, a couple of years there, they were, pr they were producing, well, their productivity was slightly down. Their numbers were as high or higher than they had, we had ever recorded before. If that continues to be the case, then I think we need to look at just, hey, we're going to be managing a modified ecosystem. If we see declines... And if we see declines, we need to go back and ma make sure that wasn't just a blip. Um, then maybe we need to change our strategy. So uh, what about climate change, right? Climate change is obviously, like, interconnected with the, the issue that you're talking about regarding fire regimes. Um, uh, I mean, that, to me, seems like the biggest question mark as far as, like, what the, this, this habitat will look like in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years? It probably will. Um, and it's same thing I, I, as, as the fires. If, if the raptors are able to cope with a modified environment, then great. And the squirrels and the jackrabbits, which the jackrabbits might be less resilient than the squirrels. But luckily, the golden eagles, we're seeing that at least some of them seem to be more of a generalist than we than we thought by shifting to waterfall. Mm -hmm. um, and so some of them are hanging on. We, As I said, we have seen a drop in the number of pairs, and it does look like sort of the whole carrying capacity of the, the canyon has dropped a little. But the ones that are there are producing as well as any have. Mm -hmm. So that's why you have to look at it, and you can't just look at it in one year when there's been a, some perturbation that skews things. Right. This comes back to the importance of long-term monitoring, um, and it, it seems like it's, it's even more important in this moment than it maybe ever has been. Mm -hmm. So if the Gateway West project is constructed through the NCA, you know, the routes are set, but there will be mitigation money. There hopefully will be mitigation money to offset some of the impacts, how do you think that money is best spent to enhance the NCA for raptors and prey population? Okay, well, the first thing I would like to see, if it's built, is that I'd like to see biologists and engineers working together to make sure that we don't have a negative impact on raptors. You know, we looked at that one transmission line and everything looked pretty good, but they may have a different configuration that's going to be a problem or maybe, but they can probably come up with configurations that are better. So at whatever point <laughs> they decide, I, I want biologists and engineers to be working closely together to design those towers and decide where to put platforms or not to put platforms. That's the first step. That's not really mitigation. That's just implementation, I guess. And I, I've, I, I hope that happens. I don't think I'm going to be, like I said, I don't think I'm going to be around by the time that happens. So I just, I don't know where to plant that. 
idea. Um, but mitigation, again, um, do we restore shrub habitats? Do we spend a lot of money trying to restore shrub habitats when we know that's expensive and often fails? Um, again, let's monitor the raptors and let them tell us whether, um, whether that is important or not. Because that would be one, I know, there would be a lot of pressure to um, plant shrubs and restore shrub habitats as part of mitigation. And that may or may not be the best way to go. I don't know. But platforms on towers, you think, are a, a vital part of construction. I do. And there's a uh, hundred different tower types, and there's different ways you can string the transmission right. lines on the towers. And all that is important as to whether that substrate is a good nesting substrate for a raptor. And a safe. Yeah. Safe for nesting and perching, too. And if you're really ingenious, you want to be able to encourage raptors and discourage ravens. How do you do that? That's, That's a good, good question. <laughs> That's a good question. But I think there are ways that you could you could look at because um, – we never had ravens nesting on any of the platforms, and then they wouldn't nest on that tower. So I, the more platforms you could put up, the more beautios and eagles, maybe, and the fewer ravens. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about the tower or the platforms discouraging the ravens. We did this year have one PPNL tower that had a raven nest and a fruit platform, really? and they both nest fledged <gasps> oh. off the same tower. Wow, we didn't have that during our studies. Interesting. Um, so maybe that's a bad idea. Well, I mean, that's one tower in a lot of towers. But uh, just interesting, ravens are very smart. And yep. once they've decided they want to do something, yep. uh, in, my, in a lot of people's experience, it's very hard to make them not do that. So, yeah. But I think if engineers and biologists put their heads together, I think they could come up with some approaches that would be worth trying anyway. Because they're usually afraid. Ravens they are intelligent, but they're right. terrified of prairie falcons. Yeah. Well, and, and I would be interesting. We haven't tracked the number of ravens nesting, but it would be interesting to look at how many ravens are on that line now mm -hmm. versus in the early 80s when you saw a new transmission line go in and then the ravens start to colonize mm -hmm. the towers. Um, how many were there in 1985 versus now? Yeah. Yep. Uh, versus now? They should, certainly should do that before they put a new line in. But see, they in their in their in the BLM's um, environmental statements, they would say, "Oh, this line is going to affect this many raptors because it was the, the, our proposed line because it was going to be right next to the ones the power line that already provided nesting substrate. But if we put it over here, we won't be affected negatively." And they were assuming it would be a negative effect. So the existing power line, whether it's Big Baja or PPNL, new set of towers, are they piggybacking? Are they taking... So Baja will be double-circuited. Okay. So, they so they'll put in a new, new structure and run both the existing wires and the new wires on the same structure. That's the proposal for Baja. For the 500 kV, they're going to be putting a new set of towers adjacent within 250 meters away. It'd be interesting to see what happens mm -hmm. when a larger tower goes in. Yep. Do you have birds that have been nesting there for the past five years say, oh, higher... Substrate, exactly. I'm going to just move. Exactly. Substrate. And so you don't have more territories. You just shift the ones you have. That's what has to be monitored. Exactly. Or, yeah, does another pair come in and say, hey, we're new neighbors, and now we're doubling. 
the nesting substrates. Um, I don't think we'd be doubling probably, right, right. but this will be another challenge because the power companies were always receptive to the idea of putting out new poles or leaving some of the poles for the old, but they are, they've been scared by Fish and Wildlife Service. If they have to go in and do any kind of maintenance and there's an eagle or even a hawk nesting, they are in via, they're disturbing the eagle if they go climb by it and do whatever they need to do their maintenance. And some fish and wildlife people have been over aggressive in trying to limit them. And so some of the power companies are skittish and say, we don't want raptors nesting on our power lines. Because then we can't do the maintenance. We can't do the maintenance. And that problem needs to be, I know, um, Matt Stuber, Stuber was. Um, helping us on that. I think they were people from Wyoming that were in the Fish and Wildlife Service that went a little overboard. So that needs to be all worked out. No, that's a good point. You you want to provide nesting substrate so that raptors have a place to nest. You also want the power company to be able to do maintenance and And they can and that should be you know, it should be doable. So at the very beginning of this interview you talked about how, you know, you had like some uh, it was a little bit strange for you to move to this area because you were used to trees and it's so open. Um, and, and you sort of like insinuated that that, that has shifted over uh, the course of the time that you've lived here. I, I, I guess I'm just wondering, like, how has this area be- become your home? Well, first of all, I don't live in the Birds of Prey area. I live five miles from it. <laughs> in an area that so far hasn't had so much shrub loss. So I guess I'm still seeking the the shrubs that I first ca- encountered when I got here, I guess. And, and, I, and the openness is definitely part of what I need um, for my well-being. Um, but I don't know when that was. I guess it must have been about mm-hmm, 20, 30 years ago. I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it's, I think, quite interesting that you chose to buy a house and and live, you know, make your home an area that is only five miles from the border of the NCA. Well, and that, but that has to do with all my friends and everything. I mean, didn't, when it was time to retire, first of all, I had to stay in the area until I retired, of course. And then do you pick up and start over where you don't know anyone or do you maintain people with all the people you know and work with and all that, so. But like, do you do you do you feel like you've developed like like a, a personal connection with the the canyon and and and, and the landscape uh, in that area? Yeah, because, and I think I do because it is hard to see the degradation in the in the canyon in the not not so much in the canyon itself, but in the surrounding. Like oh, and and even when people say, "Oh, this is beautiful," and I think should have seen it 40 years ago it really was (laughs) because of all that when you see massive stands of cheatgrass and tumbleweed but maybe the prairie falcons like it that way and if they do better for them That was Karen Steenhoff, retired wildlife biologist and researcher for the BLM and USGS. 
If you'd like to learn more about this oral history project, more information can be found at birdsofpreyncapartnership.org slash dedication point. Dedication Point is a production of the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership in association with the Bureau of Land Management, the Wildlands Collective, and the Archives of Falconry. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Great Turtle.